Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. One of the greatest figures, not only in church history, but in world history, is Paul of Tarsus. St. Paul, uh, we forget oftentimes how important um, some of our uh, church heroes are. I often point out with St. Augustine, for instance, that not only was he an outstanding Catholic bishop, but he's also considered to be uh, the most prolific uh, writer of late antiquity. Uh, so if you were just writing, you know, not even trying to consider the church, you'd still look at St. Paul as this massive figure that had to be dealt with. Well, Paul of Tarsus is the same way, and I don't know if he's been given quite the attention he deserves by secular authorities, but certainly in the church and in non-Catholic uh, circles, uh, St. Paul is huge. And I'm glad to say that we have before us a new study of uh, Paul. It's uh, called Paul, a New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology. And with me right now to talk about is Dr. Brant Petrie, Distinguished Research Professor of Sacred Scripture at the Augustine Institute. And he's the author of many books, including, like you said, most recently, Paul, a New Covenant Jew, uh, but also Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary. He also co-authored with John Bergsma the Catholic Introduction to the Bible, the Old Testament, which we've discussed here. And uh, it's great to have you back with me. Thanks so much, Brent. Thanks for having me, Al. Good to be with you again. Let's go right to the title itself, uh, yeah. Paul, a New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology. A lot of rethinking about Paul has gone on over the last generation, right? Yeah, it's amazing. The explosion of books that have been articles that have been written in the last, I'd say, 30 or 40 years. Um, it's, it's actually impossible for one person to keep up. If you look at all the different topics being discussed right now in New Testament studies, Paul is in many ways, in the last two decades in particular, the hottest of all of them. It's just amazing how much work is being done on him. And why is that? I think that in part it's because um, in the 1970s there was a, a major book by E.P. Sanders called uh, Paul and Palestinian Judaism mm -hmm. that launched a critique of Paul that had been in place for really for centuries, especially in non-Catholic circles and Protestant circles. Yeah. Uh, a, a view of Paul that was very traditional, went back to, in various forms, very uh, diverse forms, to Luther and Calvin, but that saw Paul... Uh, in a sense, in a, as in a polemical relationship with the Judaism of his day, mm -hmm. and that often characterizes characterized Paul's description of Judaism as a legalistic religion of works righteousness, right. and 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 Paul's polemics against you know being justified by faith and not by works of the law as a polemic against um, basically the Jewish ideas of earning one's righteousness through performing good deeds. And back in 1977, what Sanders argued, and he was a uh, mainline Protestant, although not very uh, practicing, but rather secular in his outlook. Mm -hmm. What he argued was is that uh, that uh, much of Pauline interpretation in Protestant circles had gotten him wrong on that point, right. and that in fact Judaism was not a religion of works righteousness, but a religion of grace, in which a person gets into the old covenant through grace, but stays in through works. Right. And that's this this perspective of Sanders launched uh, a, really a revolution in Pauline studies that eventually came to be associated with the term the new perspective on Paul. Right. Um, and and that debate over the work of E.P. Sanders and the so-called new perspective has has led to a really amazing time period in, in Pauline scholarship where everyone is rethinking everything from the ground up. Uh, and, and Michael Barber and John Kincaid, my co-authors, and I felt like 
we could bring a Catholic voice to that discussion of Paul's relationship with Judaism. That's what we're trying to do in this book. It would seem, just from the general outline you've given us, that the new perspective on Paul tends to favor a more Catholic approach to Paul. Uh, yeah, I, I would say that, although not in an unqualified way. There, as we try to look at in the book, there are, there are important points of convergence yes. between uh, the work of E.P. Sanders and the New Perspective, but there are also some differences. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things we're trying to do is take some of the key insights of the New Perspective. For example, uh, E.P. Sanders really emphasized the importance of, for Paul of participation in Christ, right? The idea that it's not just that I, as a believer, you know, accept Christ as my Savior and then am declared to be righteous through a kind of juridical, forensic declaration, although that's true, but that also through baptism, I become a member of Christ's body. I actually participate in Christ, and then through the grace of the new covenant, a real change takes place in me, um, so that I move from being part of the old creation under Adam to the new creation in Christ. So there are some differences, um, for sure. But the basic insight of the New Perspective, and of E.B. Sanders in particular, is that when Paul talks about justification by faith apart from works of the law, he's not arguing or polemicizing against good works that are done in Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. What What he's talking about there is the idea that you can get into Christ through works of the law, such as circumcision or other acts that might have brought you into the Old Covenant, but they are insufficiently for making you a member of Christ, for making you a participant in Christ, which is really the essence of salvation for Paul. The way we are justified is by dying with Christ and rising with him through faith and baptism. So that's, that's really one of the key insights of Sanders. When Sanders argued that Paul wasn't polemicizing against good works, it set off a firestorm of debate within, especially within non-Catholic circles, about how to interpret Paul, how to interpret works of the law, and also how to interpret Paul's overall relationship with uh, Judaism, the Judaism of his day. I imagine it's created a good deal of controversy among evangelical Protestant uh, circles. Yeah, that's that's absolutely the case. There's been a really strong pushback against. Um, the work of E.P. Sanders and the work of, um, of various figures who followed him, such as James Dunn and N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, N.T. Wright, I mean, he's probably the most prolific and, and well-read New Testament scholar writing today, and he's kind of one of the key figures in the so-called New Perspective. And one of the criticisms of the, of uh, especially the work of um, Wright and Sanders was uh, many evangelical Protestants pushed back and said, well, hold on a second. If you look at Paul carefully, there are passages in Paul's letters where when he uses the expression works, or he talks about justification apart from works, he doesn't just seem to be talking about circumcision or, you know, uh, dietary laws, but actually any kind of work. And the classic example, this is in Romans chapter 4, you might recall when Paul's using Abraham as Mm -hmm. an example of someone who was justified by faith and not by works. And in that passage is a really important line that many evangelical Protestant scholars have pointed to when Paul says in Romans 4, this is verse 4 uh, and 5, he says, To one who works, his wages are reckoned not as a gift—I'm sorry, not reckoned as a gift, but as his due. And to one who does not work, but justifies 
who trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. And then he goes on to give an example of David, right, who was justified apart from works. And he quotes one of the Psalms there, blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And as many evangelical scholars point out, uh, well, look, if you look at David in the Old Testament, um, when you say, when Paul says he was justified apart from works, uh, circumcision was not David's problem, right? Right. <laughs> it wasn't that he failed to get circumcised and failed to, you know, to uh, you know, keep the dietary laws. David's problem was that he committed adultery and he committed murder and he broke the Decalogue, right? And yet God justified him; He forgave him of his iniquities because of his faith and because of his repentance. So there's been an interesting back and forth out here about exactly how to define. Uh, the role of works in Paul, and especially the definition of role of works of the law. And so what John and Michael and I have done in this book is kind of a, a Catholic uh, classic both-and, right? Yeah. To look at the aspects of both positions and say, yes, the new perspective is right. There are certain passages like Galatians, where when Paul talks about works of the law, he's clearly referring primarily to circumcision and mm-hmm. other you know mm-hmm. dietary laws of Judaism. But there are other passages like Romans 4, where it's uh, you know, circumcision is at play, but it's not exclusively those works. It also includes any work of the old law, including obedience to the Decalogue, right? Because it's true, if you think about it, a person does not get into either the Old Covenant or the New Covenant by obedience to the, the Ten Commandments right. or any of the works of the Old Testament. It's always through grace. Yep. So that's what we're trying to show in this book, that actually a good Catholic reading of Paul emphasizes actually what the Council of Trent itself said. If you look at the Council of Trent, a lot of Catholics don't know this, and i got to confess, Al, when I was first studying this, I didn't realize this either. But if you look at the Council of Trent, it actually says, nothing that precedes justification, neither faith nor works, would merit the initial yep. grace yep. of justification. Yep. Because if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And that's Trent. Guess who, guess who it's quoting there? Yeah. St. Paul. That's right. So we're trying that's to right. show a Catholic both-and approach to Paul that would take these different uh, aspects of many uh, much of the debate going on in non-Catholic circles and, and give a, a Catholic perspective on them. What kind of Jew was Paul is the question you ask in your first chapter here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is a great question. So, how, how, would he, how, how would he have... Uh, how would he have characterized himself if he were asked that question? So, Paul, what kind Man, of Jew is, are you? Yeah, this is, boy, this is another one of those hot debates right now. Yeah. After works of the law, this might be the next biggest debate. Because, you know, there are some passages where Paul will talk as if he's almost uh, a former Jew, right? right? So, for example, in Galatians 1, he'll say, in my former life in Judaism. Or in Philippians 3, he'll talk about how, you know, he considers his past to be rubbish when comparison to what he's, you know, now that he's been found in Christ. And then First Corinthians chapter 9, Paul actually says he's no longer under the law, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. what Jew would say such a thing? Right. So on one hand, Paul will have these passages where he almost sounds like he's describing himself as a convert from Judaism to Christianity. Of course, he doesn't use those terms, right, because the term Christianity hasn't been invented yet. Right. But yeah. on the other hand, there are other passages where Paul talks about himself as a Jew, as an Israelite. So in Romans 9, he'll talk about his, you know, his fellow Israelites and the faith, 
In Philippians 3, he'll call himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? (laughs) Right. As to the law, blameless. He's very proud of his Jewish identity. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine what this has led to is some scholars talk about Paul as if he's no longer a Jew, a kind of former Jew, a convert to Christianity. Others will say, no, no, no. Paul is a Torah observant Jew. He's completely and thoroughly Jewish, and all he's trying to do is bring Judaism to the Gentiles, bring the truth of monotheism to the Gentiles. Uh, This view of Paul as a law-observant Jew is actually really uh, gaining a lot of momentum in recent years, Al. Some people call it the radical new perspective. (laughs) So in other words, the new perspective goes back to the 70s, but now we've got a new new perspective, which is a more radical view of Paul's Jewishness. And so what what, um, John and Michael and I try to do in our book is say that maybe we should look at how Paul describes himself. Mm -hmm. And if you look at 2 Corinthians 3, he calls himself a new covenant Jew. Okay. Hold it there, if you would, Brent. We'll be back and continue. My guest, Dr. Brent Petrie, the book, Paul, A New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology. This is a fascinating look at uh, St. Paul, who is really, by all Christian accounts, uh, next to Jesus, the most important single figure in our understanding. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Brent Petrie. We're taking a look at St. Paul. Uh, He and Michael Barber and John Kincaid have just published uh, a new volume called Paul, A New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology. And we're going over the various um, ways that Paul uh, may have understood himself. And I guess a lot of people ask the question, and it's a natural one, did Paul think that uh, the Jewish people had a history uh, or a future uh, apart from Christ? Mm, yeah, that's a great way to ask the question, Al. Uh, and there, there, there is, in fact, a, a way of reading Paul. There's a rising group of scholars, uh, sometimes called the Radical New Perspective on Paul, and, that are arguing today—this is really interesting, Al—they're actually arguing that not only did Paul see himself uh, first and foremost, as a Jew. And not only was Paul a law-observant Jew, but they're actually arguing that Paul, the law-observant Jew, really believed that there were two ways of salvation, mm. that the Torah of Moses had been given by God to the Jews for their salvation, and that the gospel had been given by God to the Gentiles for their salvation. Um, you, I don't know if you've seen this book. It came out a few years back, uh, it was it was entitled kind of provocatively. Was Paul a Christian? Have you heard of that one? I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's Paul was not a Christian. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's by Pamela Eisenbaum. Mm-hmm. And in that book, she's a Jewish scholar, Jewish New Testament scholar. And in that book, Paul was not a Christian. You know, she points out two things. One of them is very true. She says Paul never calls himself a Christian. Right. And it's true. The word Christianos does not occur in any of Paul's letters. Right. And he does call himself a Jew. But what she also goes on to argue that is that for Paul, Jesus only dies for the Gentiles. Mm. He doesn't die for the Jews, because the Torah is the way the Jews are saved, and Christ is the way the Gentiles are saved. That's Eisenbaum's argument. So what she's wrestling with there is this you know, complex relationship between Paul and the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so what we try to show in the book is that view of Paul, that radical new perspective, really doesn't do justice 
to Paul's own self-description, because although he does call himself a Jew and an Israelite and a Hebrew and all those things, he also, in 2 Corinthians 3, refers to himself, very importantly, as a minister of the new covenant. Right. This is really crucial. So that's the subtitle of our book. Uh, it, it, by describing Paul as a new covenant Jew, what we effectively do is are able to uh, explain both the continuity between Paul and Judaism, that's the emphasis on the covenant there, right? Right. But also the discontinuity, that God really has inaugurated something new uh, in Jesus Christ, and that Paul's apostolic activity isn't just to Gentiles. To the contrary, it's to everyone. As Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 9, right? I became as all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some, yeah, right? So yeah. when he's with the Jews, he says, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. And when I was with those who were not under the law, i.e. the pagans, I became as one outside the law, right? So that I might win everyone. So our book is kind of a response to that. What we're trying to show is if you think of Paul as a new covenant Jew, you can begin to understand why he both affirms the goodness of the law, affirms the goodness of the Torah, but also says that something new has happened in Christ, and that Paul is going to be the one who brings that, the good news of salvation through the new covenant to not just Jews, but to Gentiles, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. Does she have to get, does she have to get rid of the pastoral epistles in order to maintain that position? Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, uh, most of much of the scholarship going on today, and especially a lot of the scholarship we deal with in our book, uh, takes the seven undisputed yeah. letters of Paul right, right. as the the base text, right? So most of them will not address or will regard the the pastoral epistles as pseudographical, in other words, as written in Paul's name, but as not actually having been authored by him. Yeah, so so the, because we're entering into that debate, we focus in this book just on those seven sure, sure. letters as well. But yeah. I mean, she, wouldn't she have difficulty with, uh, not only with the pastoral epistles, but also with Colossians and Ephesians, given the oh, cosmic absolutely. the cosmic role that Jesus plays? Absolutely, yeah. No, yeah. there's no doubt that though, that it's much more difficult to bring those passages, those uh, the pastoral epistles and uh, the other disputed Pauline letters into that view. But as we're trying to show in this book, even the letters that are undisputed, like Second Corinthians, right, there's right. no and Romans, there's no way to reconcile them with the view that Paul sees two paths to salvation: one for Jews and one for Gentiles. For Paul, this is how we put it: everyone for Paul is saved through the new covenant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the essence of it. Yeah. And that's why he calls himself a minister of the New Covenant. He's not a minister of the Mosaic Covenant. Think about it. Is Paul a Levite or a priest working in the temple, right. you know, renewing the Mosaic Covenant through the sacrifices? No, that's not what he's doing. He's going out to synagogues and also to Gentiles and bringing people to faith and baptism into Jesus Christ. And his, his expectation is that, that this New Covenant is uh, consequential for all of humanity, yes. right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah um, actually, if you go back and you look, um, well, first at Romans chapter 1, which is kind of Paul's main theological treatise, at the very beginning he talks about the gospel, right? Yep. And he says um, in chapter 1, verse 17, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who yeah, has faith, right. to the Jew first and also the Greek. So right. it's a universal message of salvation for both Jews and Greeks. At the same time, it is 
it is complicated. It is difficult to try to explain why Paul will sometimes speak about the law so positively, right. and other times he seems to speak about it negatively, right? How he refers to himself as a Jew, and yet at the same time as a minister of the New Covenant. So that's what we're really wrestling with in this book. You know, What is the gospel of Paul, um, and how does it affect— how does it affect the way he carries out his ministry, but also what, what what he believes and what the New Testament teaches about salvation? I mean, as I'm sure you know, there uh, in our day and time has become very popular to embrace a kind of universalism, which I know. says that you know there are all these different paths to God, and they're really all kind of the same. And you can see a little bit of that in the work of scholars like Eisenbaum. She actually describes her position as similar to universalism. Paul's got one path to God for the Jews and another path for the Gentiles. And we think that there are real problems with that radical new perspective in terms of making sense of Paul's own statements about salvation in Christ, like salvation as being in In, Christ. Yeah, yeah. This this problem of universalism is, uh, is, I, I would have thought this thing would have been killed off by now, but it seems to have new life recently. Well, I think in, in well in Pauline studies in particular, it definitely fits with the spirit of the times, right? Yeah. But there's also passages such as Romans eleven yeah. six, right? All Israel will be saved. Right. That scholars like Eisenbahn are going to point to, and what they'll say is, look, when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he means all Israel will be saved. He doesn't mean just those Jews who uh, believe in Jesus, like Paul himself or Peter or the apostles, but all Israelites. And so, um, and, and, and they'll go on to say, well, he's, and he means that they will be saved through the Old Covenant, because the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable, right, as right. Paul says in Romans 11. But uh, as we try to show in the book, you can only interpret those verses in that way if you take them out of context, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is true, Paul says, all Israel will be saved, but then he goes on to quote Jeremiah 31, when God talks right. about making a covenant right. in which he will take away their sins. The new covenant. And in Jeremiah yeah. 31, yeah, it's the new covenant. That's exactly right. right. He's, Paul's deliberately quoting their prophecy of the new covenant. So it's not just any covenant through which all Israel will be saved. It's through the new covenant itself. Yeah. Uh, what, um, what did St. Paul think of what Jesus accomplished in uh, what we call the atonement. Oh wow, this is a really important question. Um, this is another classic example of how Paul is thoroughly Jewish, yeah, and yet also saying something really new mm-hmm. about what has happened in Christ. So if you go back and you look at Romans chapter three, for example, this is kind of the classic text on the atonement in Paul's um, letters, where he says. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation. Yeah. Or the New Revised Standard Version translates that as an atonement, mm-hmm, sacrifice mm-hmm. of atonement by his blood to be received by faith. And what's interesting is that word there that's translated sacrifice of atonement, hilasterion, is actually goes back to the Greek version of the Jewish scriptures and the description of the Day of Atonement, Hmm. the mercy seat 
um, that if you recall in the book of Leviticus, once a year, the high priest would enter into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. He would offer a sacrifice, and then he would sprinkle the blood of that sacrifice seven times on the hilasterion, the same word that Paul uses there. Sometimes it's translated as the mercy seat, right? It's the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. It's this the most sacred place in the temple where the atonement for all of the sins of the high priest and all the priests and all the people for the entire year would be atoned for through the blood of that sacrifice in the temple that was offered annually every fall. Now, notice what Paul does. He takes something very Jewish, right, the language of the mercy seat, the language of the atonement, the language of the sacrifice, but he says that now that has been accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ, right, that through his act of atonement, justification now takes place by his grace as a gift for all those who have faith. So this is a perfect example of how both Paul is both continuous with Judaism, right? He's thinking in Jewish categories. He's using the language of Jewish scripture. He's using the language of the Jewish Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But he's applying it to something radically new and different. He's not talking about the high priest in the earthly temple with the blood of a bull or a goat. He's talking about the blood of this layman from Galilee, right, Nazareth of all places, who was executed as a criminal outside the city of Jerusalem. How do you how do you turn that cross into a cultic act, into a into a temple liturgy? Well, it's only if Jesus Himself is a sacrificial yes. offering, if yes. He's the sacrificial lamb, if His blood is a sacrificial act of atonement. Um, for for a long time, uh, I don't know if it's still being done in New Testament studies. But for a long time, when I was a new Christian, there were those mm-hmm. scholars claiming that... Uh, can you stay with me another segment, Brent? Oh, yeah, sure. sure. Good, good. Absolutely. All right, hang in there. We'll come back. We're going to talk about whether the theology of Paul was also the theology of Jesus. Uh, there have been those scholars that tried to drive a wedge between Jesus and Paul, as though Paul is the real inventor of Christianity. We'll come back on the other side of the break and put, uh, bring this up with Dr. Brent Petrie. Paul, a New Covenant Jew, rethinking Pauline theology. We need EWTN Radio for the reason that Mother Angelica founded this entire enterprise. She always saw this as a spiritual growth network. It was to be an enterprise in media that reached people in all aspects of their life. She saw this as a a holistic approach to reaching the whole person in the middle of the world and bringing them truth and life. Raymond Arroyo thinks Catholic Radio is important. So should you. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Brent Petrie, who with um, Michael Barber and John Kincaid have they've co-authored Paul, A New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology. One of the first uh, challenges I had when I began as a Christian while I was still in college, was uh, I came across people claiming that the theology, that Paul's the really real inventor of Christianity, mm-hmm. and sure. somehow um, he is, he's not an adequate interpreter of Jesus' life. Uh, he didn't spend time with Jesus, and so he basically is the inventor of Christianity. Uh, what do you make of those who claim, make such a claim? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I would say we that claim has died down somewhat okay. uh, in recent years. 
so it wasn't one of the key topics we addressed in yeah, this book okay. in particular. Uh, although I do think there, there are some people who make the claim. Essentially what they tend to mean when they say that, Al, is that whereas Jesus of Nazareth restricted his mission to Jews, right? Uh, like he says in Matthew, Matthew yep. the 12 apostles, you know, yeah, go nowhere among the Gentiles, but only to the lost tribes of Israel. Mm-hmm. Paul makes a very clear beeline, right, to the right. nations of the world, to the right. pagan peoples. And they see that as an act of discontinuity or disjuncture, like kind of a rupture with the mission of Jesus. Um, so we didn't get into that in this book, although actually I have written on it elsewhere in my dissertation, I actually dealt with this, because what I show in there is that if you look at the Hebrew prophets over and over again, when the prophets describe what Jesus himself set out to do, namely regather the 12 tribes of Israel, yep. right? That's, the prophets say over and over again, all 10 tribes will be brought back from the Assyrian exile. They'll be gathered together, and the 12 tribes will be reconstituted, and that's when the kingdom of God will come. If you look at the prophets, they always will say, or, or at least almost always, they'll frequently say that when the— when the lost tribes of Israel and the 12 tribes are gathered together, like Jesus is doing with the apostles, that the Gentiles will come with them. Mm -hmm. We do have a brief section earlier in the book where we actually point out that when St. Paul talks about all Israel being saved, you can actually make a case that he's talking about all 12 tribes. And in Jewish thought, this is really interesting, um, there was a belief that when the Assyrian exile took place eight centuries before Christ, those ten lost northern tribes had actually been—actually, well, well, this isn't just a belief. We know it's a fact. They were intermingled among the pagan peoples when the Assyrians brought them into exile. Mm-hmm. And so their identity was, in a sense, absorbed into the pagan nations of the world. So there was this expectation, and we think you can make the case that this is what Paul is actually talking about in Romans 9 through 11, that in order to get all Israel back, in order to gather all 12 tribes, including the lost tribes, guess what you have to do? Yeah, You have to bring the nations back right. as well, right. because in doing so, you get the descendants of those northern tribes that nobody ever thinks about, you know, Naphtali and uh, Asher and, and, and Dan and all the other tribes besides Judah and Benjamin. So there is an eschatological continuity. Jesus begins the ingathering of the 12 tribes in the land, but then Paul takes it and he goes out to the nations. But you'll notice, what does he always do? He always goes to the synagogue first, first in the book of Acts. Yeah, right? It's yeah. to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So there's actually more continuity between Paul's mission and Jesus' mission than people tend to realize, but it's just because they don't read the prophets as closely, perhaps. Which <laughs> <laughs> well, is understandable. The prophets, the prophets are hard. I get it. I get it. But it's important <laughs> to see that the prophets talk about the ingathering of Israel right, right. and the Gentiles. Uh, what about the uh, emphasis on the kingdom in Jesus's uh, words, whereas the concept or the, the word kingdom is not that big, a, doesn't play that big a place in Paul's writings? Yeah, I think that one reason that's the case is you need to keep in mind whenever you're looking at Paul, who's the audience yes, of the bulk yes, of his letters, right? That's right. So although his missionary activity is directed to Jew first and then to Greek, than to the Greek, he does describe himself as the apostle to the nations, and the churches that he founds, like the churches in Corinth, he's usually writing to Gentiles, right? Mm -hmm. Who are Remember, so Jesus is speaking to Jews, and they're going to understand when he talks about the kingdom of God, he's alluding to the book of Daniel and to the prophecies of the kingdom that Jews were very familiar with. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the Gentiles, Paul will sometimes not use language that presupposes 
as much knowledge of the Jewish scripture. So he won't talk about the Son of Man as much or the kingdom of God as much, although he does talk about the kingdom. It's not like it's not in the letter, right. uh, precisely because he's writing to a Gentile audience. It's going to have a different uh, vocabulary, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it certainly does. Uh, again, I want to get to this idea of the inbreaking of the kingdom or what what exactly is our relationship to the age to come um yeah and yeah this is a great question yeah now does does he uh is it clear that saint paul recognizes that we have in the eucharist an inbreaking of the kingdom absolutely although i think that the language that paul uses here if you go back and look at the um if you go back and look at the, 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 the letter to the Corinthians, yeah. where Paul really talks about the Eucharist, he, he tends to actually describe it, and Michael Barber does a great job with this in his chapter in the book, as a kind of participation right. in the new creation. Yeah, right? okay. It's very, very important. There's a lot of debate. You know, does Paul look at the Lord's Supper as merely symbolic, or does he think that the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Christ? Is he more realistic in his approach to what he's describing in, in his accounts of the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper? And as we show in the book, if you look at Paul's teaching on the Eucharist in light of Jewish eschatology and in light of Paul's statements about what Christ has done, you'll see that Paul sees our participation in the Eucharist as a participation in the beginning of the new creation. See, in Judaism, there was this expectation that when the Messiah finally came, or when the age, you know, the age of salvation was inaugurated, mm-hmm. that this world would pass away, and a new age, or a new world, a new creation would take place. So it was like two distinct spheres of reality, the old creation and the new creation. But for Paul, what happens is, in Christ, those two spheres of reality overlap. So that those of us who have been baptized, in a sense, we have one foot in the old creation and another foot in the new creation. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11, not only does Jesus, Paul quote Jesus saying, you know, this is my body, which is given for you, and this is my blood, but he also speaks uh, in 1 Corinthians 10 with these words. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And those, the, the word there for participation is koinonia. It can mean fellowship, but it's a real participation in the blood and body of Christ, which has been, of course, not just crucified for Paul, but also resurrected, right? Christ right. is the beginning of this new creation. And if you have any doubts that he's talking about that realistically, if you just keep going, guess what he compares the Eucharist to? The sacrifices that were eaten by the Israelites in the temple, yep. and the sacrifices that pagans eat in their temples that they offered to demons. Hmm. And so he says at the end of that verse, in, in chapter 10, verse 21, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so notice what Paul thinks of. He thinks of the Eucharist there as a true participation, either in the invisible spirituality of the demonic or in the in the reality of Christ's crucified and resurrected body and blood. Wow. And so as we show in the book, when he calls it the, the Lord's table, this is really cool, Al, he's actually alluding to Malachi chapter 1, where Malachi describes the Lord's table as the sacrificial altar in the temple. Huh. Right? Huh. So when Paul talks, if he calls the Lord's Supper <laughs> something happening on the Lord's table, yeah. guess what? 
he thinks the Eucharist is a sacrifice. Wow. Wow. So and, there, and, and insofar as that, it's a real participation in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Well, that's amazing. The continuity of, in a sense, is some temple theology thrown in here. Um, that's ex- that's yeah. exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. That's, yep. a, that's amazing. Which, which makes sense, because remember, what has he told the Corinthians? You know, you are God's temple. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yeah. Let me go to— The Holy to, Spirit now dwelling in them. You know, uh, as an evangelical for so many years, um, as I presented the gospel to people, it was a matter of uh, placing your faith in Christ so that your sins would be forgiven. And I don't recall a single time uh, during those years that I ever talked about uh, receiving Christ and thereby becoming a child of God. I I guess I assumed that would be the case, but it wasn't what I played. Uh, John... You know, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, he talks about those who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, Mm -hmm. but born of God. Um, So this idea of divine sonship is much more common in the Catholic understanding of the Gospel than I recall it anyways as an evangelical. Uh, Do you see that as a major difference? I do see it as a major difference in emphasis, for sure. So if you look, for example, this goes all the way back to the Council of Trent. In the Catholic tradition, when the Council of Trent issued the decree on justification, it actually defined justification as divine sonship, yeah. right? Right. We, uh, and, it, and it rooted that definition in the letters of Paul. And it, we have a whole chapter just on justification in Paul. It's really important. And we home in in particular on uh, Romans 8, where Paul is talking about, you know, he says, uh, among those who he predestined, he also called, and among those who called, he also justified, mm-hmm. and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And if you back up just one verse, what does he mean when he says that those whom he predestined, he justified? Well, in Romans 8, verse 29, he says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his yes, Son. that's right. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Ah, so look, for Paul, see, justification isn't just a declaration of forgiveness, right. although it is that, which yes. is wonderful and great, but it's also being conformed to the image of God's Son. That means that for Paul, uh, righteousness in Christ isn't, it isn't counterfactual, right? It's not a fiction, right. it's not just imputed to us, but it brings about a real change. We really are conformed to the image of Christ so that we can actually say we are sons and daughters of God in the Son, right? Yes. It really changes us and makes us children of God. That's why Paul can say in Galatians, right, we cry out through the Spirit that's been given to us, Abba, Father. Yes. Right? But yes. this image of being conformed in Romans 8 is really cr- critical because the Catholic view of justification is that it isn't just you know, forensic or juridical or legal. It's transformative. A person's heart is really changed through the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul's so he's so important. He's so fixed or emphatic about uh, Jeremiah 31 because the new covenant. What's new about the new covenant? Well, God says, "I will write the law where, yeah, in their heart." Their heart right. right. So it's right. not just an extrinsic declaration. God actually changes us from within, at least according to Paul. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this shows up again in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, isn't it, where he, where he seems to have justification, sanctification uh, collapsed yep. into one another. That's right. It's almost like 
three ways of talking about the same thing. In 1 yeah. Corinthians 6, 11, he says, you were washed, right? You right. were sanctified. You were justified, yep. right? Yep. Um, and that's, that's long been a debate when he says justify there. What does that exactly mean? Does it mean to declare someone righteous or innocent, like in a court verdict? Or does it mean to actually make that person righteous through grace? And Catholics have always said, well, it's both. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's right. a both and. It's not an either or. Uh, there. there there really is a, a declaration that God makes, but that but see when God declares something now it's efficacious when right. he says let there that's be right. light there's light there's light it's and a performative says, utterance you're right? righteous yeah. that's exactly that's exactly right that's exactly what the terminology scholars use today a performative utterance it's yeah. a real change that's affected by his word well Brent thanks for joining me once again always great talking with you and uh, I'm really yeah, delighted to have this book so We'll talk again, Lord willing. I hope so. Thanks so much for having us, Al. Dr. Brent Petrie, Paul, a New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology. Again, tremendous uh, contribution to our understanding of St. Paul.